listening to Mosaic, a Jesus-centered communities podcast. Our goal is to help people experience a Jesus-centered life. You can find out more about us at welcometomosaic.info. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it so others can hear it as well. Enjoy the message. The woman must be taken to the door of her father's home, and there the men of the town must stone her to death. For she has committed a disgraceful crime in Israel by being promiscuous while living in her parents' home. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. Uh, Let's call her Barbara. And about 12 months ago, on a Tuesday morning, I believe, Barb, a late 20-something woman, she stumbled into our church cafe, um, aptly named the Broken Pieces Cafe, and she asked for a pastor. I was available, so um, I came down and, and spoke with her. We sat in the black armchairs out there in the cafe, and with tears running down her face uh, and into her lap, she told me something like, she's thinking about killing herself, and mainly so no one has to do it for her. That's what I think she was getting at. I, of course, I asked her to tell me more about this, you know, counseling 101 questions that you ask a person who's thinking about hurting themselves. Uh, She continued to tell me through her sobbing and her broken English that this is what the Bible requires of her sin. Now, she didn't before. She now definitely has my attention. And so I continued to, to prod a little bit more. And all through those tears and that broken English, she told me something along the lines that she had had a sexual relationship with a man who was not her husband um, while she still lived at home. And now, years later, she is married to a different man. um, And she and her husband just recently came across this passage in the Bible that tells her this isn't okay. And now it's creating tension for her and even for her and her parents. Now at the time, I, I had no idea what law of Moses she was referring to, um, and, I know, and she didn't either. My best guess after some research is the one I just read you. Uh, and there are 613 of them, by the way. Uh, most people are familiar with the Decalogue. That is commonly referred to as the Ten Commandments, but there's 603 after that, uh, just in case you didn't know that. Anyway, back to the story. I knew the answer. I knew the answer, but I asked her anyways. I asked her, are you Jewish? Uh, She, of course, she said no. Uh, I asked her where she read this in the Bible. She, of course, she she couldn't remember. I told her that I absolutely believe that you read this in the Bible, but I promise you, Barb, you did not read that in the New Testament. And again, there was a slight language barrier, uh, but I could, I could tell quickly she didn't know the difference between the Old and the New Covenant, or as our Bible likes to refer to it, the Old and the New Testament. I quickly perceived that and told her that she is trying to apply Old Covenant laws to her life, laws that were never even given to her. And even if she was a Hebrew, these are laws that have now been fulfilled. Jesus has satisfied the requirements of those laws. They're null and void. They do not apply. Those laws no longer rule. Grace now rules. It was clear to me 
that morning that this was all very new information uh, to Barbara. And she was skeptical, to say the least, but you could, you could begin to, to see the chain loose in just a touch. It was also clear to me that Barb has spent plenty of time in a church somewhere. Uh, I'm guessing a Catholic church, but it could have easily been a, a Reformed uh, evangelical church somewhere. It was clear to me that even with Barbara's church background, she had never been encouraged to dive into the scriptures herself. It was clear to me that whatever church she was coming from and now stopped going to did not teach her how to delineate between Old Covenant law and promises and New Covenant grace and promises. And finally, it was clear to me that the church had broken Barbara. Not Jesus, not the scripture, not even the Old Covenant law that she clearly didn't understand, but the church the answer that this woman needed, and I tried so desperately to give her that morning, the answer was grace. The grace that is only found in Jesus, and in his words, and his actions, and in his heart. This is what that woman needed to be set free. I attempted to drive that point home as much as I possibly could that morning. Um, I told her this grace is real, this grace is free, this grace is secure, this grace was made available to you the very moment you put your trust in Jesus, and it is time that you tap into it, Barbara. I, of course, I invite her to join us here at Mosaic on a Sunday morning um, to, to learn more about these types of things. And then she went on her way, and then I, I went and joined a, a meeting already in progress a little late, and I guess we just kind of both went on with our lives. But that moment has stuck with me, and it's begun to bother me more and more. This woman had found her place that day. She had found herself in this desperate place because of religion peddlers and grace deniers who failed to give her the one and the only thing she needed. The one thing that defines Jesus more than anything else, the one thing that holds the key to her freedom, and the church failed to deliver on it. The one thing that matters most. Grace, of course. How did that happen? Why does that happen? Uh, well, let's pray, and then we're going, to, uh, we're going to try to put a bow on this Grace Revealed sermon series. So will you pray with me? Uh, Holy Spirit, we, um, of course, we invite you to indwell in this place here. We ask that you would uh, fill our hearts. We ask that you would be loud, be louder than the world around us that is yelling untrue things at us. Would you be louder than the enemy who wants us to stay enslaved in the law or in our sin or whatever it is that keeps us from the freedom that Jesus acquired for us on the cross. As we open your scriptures, would you just show us new things today? Humbly, I ask that you would just intervene. Allow my words to be helpful. Allow them to be true and accurate. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I heard of some studies that uh, were done recently about irreligious Americans uh, stating 
that even among unchurched people, there is still a favorable view of Jesus in this country. And as a proud American, I love hearing that. I think that is pretty remarkable when you think about uh, history and you think about all the things that were supposedly done in the name of Jesus, you think about all the centuries that have passed, uh, the fact that this most unchurched people in this country would still willingly admit that they have a favorable view of Jesus, that is a big deal. That's no small thing. Um, but sadly, that's where it ends. That same study shows that that favorable view of Jesus does not, however, extend to the church, the people it contains, or the people leading it. And friends, that is not a good thing. That is a very bad thing. That is problematic. And that is something that really does need to be fixed. The problem, simply put, is that so many well-intended church people have exchanged the true gospel, the gospel of grace, for a lesser version that adds requirements to it. We talked a lot about this last week, if you remember. And by doing so, we have created a gospel and a church and a movement that is, that is just so easy to say no to. We have created a religion that is repellent and in some cases repugnant, but just in general all around off-putting. And none of those things describe the nature and the character of Jesus, yet sadly sometimes they fit all too well when describing the nature and the character of his bride, of his church. What should be such an enticing and appealing and alluring and captivating and enthralling and gripping and dare I even say enchanting message of hope, of Jesus, of grace. It has been turned into something that is just so very easy to take a pass on. Jesus, he did not come to reinforce or slightly adjust or revise the rules of religion. No, he came to put it to death. He came to set hearts free, not enslave them in his name. Jesus arrived on this planet as an infant child to introduce and initiate something entirely new, something the world had never conceived of or heard of or experienced before. And of course, that new thing was grace. And I get it. Like I told you last week, I was one of those church people for many, 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 many years. Some saved people always have and always will object to this idea of grace and that it truly is a free thing that requires no level of worthiness on the part of the recipient. And like we talked about last week, they do this because mankind just has a natural aversion to grace because of either their pride, their fear, or their desire for justice or fairness. It's a concept that sounds too good to be true. And so we naturally, we start looking for the catch. What's the catch of the grace gospel? And there isn't one. And when it can't be found, the church has a long history of manufacturing theologies to create that catch for you. We see this in the church since New Testament times. Before the church could even break out of the first century, we see its leaders starting to distort the grace doctrine. 
Paul addresses this a lot in his epistles. We've looked at that a lot these past three weeks. After the first century, we see this again as a number of the early church fathers taught things like baptism as a requirement for salvation or a compulsory life of holy living uh, is in fact required uh, to be saved or stay saved. For centuries after that, both the Catholic and the Orthodox religions taught things like the necessity of baptism, penance, indulgences, um, sacraments or, uh, are all necessary for salvation. Then if you know your world history, you know that a monk named Martin Luther uh, started the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s. That began to recover the original grace doctrine. If you ever choose, by the way, to read uh, Martin Luther's 95 Thesis, pay close attention to 62, 68, and 93. Those are important. Uh, those of them that um, introduced this Reformation, that recaptured and reclaimed and retook the original teachings of the grace gospel, of the cross gospel, those people were severely punished and they were dealt with by the church. Uh, then John Calvin, he hits the scene somewhere in the mid-1500s. He made some noise. He was a primary and essential leader in that Reformation. And he taught that grace uh, was free and faith in God's promises assures us of our irrevocable salvation. His very, very important work was so quickly twisted and reinterpreted a number of times over to make works, once again, inseparable from one's assurance and salvation thus creating a number of off-center, offshoot theologies, things like tulip Calvinism, high Calvinism, five-point Calvinism, ultimately Arminianism. Then by the mid-1600s, work-based thinking was firmly reinserted back into faith, back into the gospel, and back into the church. Not on the front end of justification now, uh, like it was in the 1400s, but now on the back end of justification to prove one's salvation. We talked about this last week. And I think this was the moment when justification and sanctification kind of got melded into one and the same thing. Today, in the 21st century, we are living in a resurgence of this cross plus something gospel. And the pattern throughout church history um, has been the same. The cross plus something. Sometimes it was the cross plus indulgences. Sometimes it was the cross plus sacraments. Sometimes it was the cross plus sanctification. I'm telling you, 505 years and one day ago, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the Castle Church in Wittenberg, he was nailing the gospel of grace to that church. He was nailing the gospel of Jesus to that building. And he was labeled a heretic for doing so. I'm getting on a bit of a tangent, but here is my point. From 15 minutes after Jesus ascended into heaven after the resurrection, the church has this verifiable and proven track record and pattern of slipping back into the very things Jesus came to set us all free from. The work-based thinking systems and religion of the Hebrew people is not altogether that different from the work-based thinking systems and religion 
of the German people in the 16th century, and ultimately not all that far from the work-based thinking systems and religion of many evangelicals in America today. Now, I, of course, I don't speak for Jesus, but I would imagine it breaks his heart to see his church, to see his bride, once again chasing after those things. And while this is heartbreaking, it, of course, it isn't um, all that surprising, only because history repeats itself. We see that all the time, and we see it in the church all the time. And if you're willing to take a deep dive into some of the finer details Uh, you will see that the church does have these moments of explosive growth and then regression. All the way back to the first century when the church overtook the very empire that put Jesus on the cross because the grace message, it was unstoppable. But then we, of course, we see the church slip back into some dark stuff for centuries, still moving forward, making some kingdom progress, but not like it did. Then we see that revival of the gospel of grace in the 16th century like we, we discussed. And, and now we're finding ourselves back in a place that would once again stand against the grace message in some way. My only point today is, is to submit to you that perhaps what makes the church of today so very easy to resist and to say no to is because of a collective drift away from grace doctrine, a drift away from the new system that Jesus came to establish. Friends, grace is the church's superpower. Okay, commercial break. Uh, Please don't forget to grab one of these resource pages out in the lobby uh, after service is over. You're going to find all kinds of good stuff on this page. Um, We've got stuff on antinomianism. You know what that is? Don't? That's okay. Scan the QR code and find out. Um, There's a great article on how we see grace in the Reformation. Um, Great stuff on uh, metanoia. That's the Greek word for repentance, a really good word study, Um, and a bunch of other fun stuff there. Um, Remember, like I told you week one, we are only scraping the very tippy top of this cupcake. And... uh, you could dive so much deeper. So if you start with those three pages, all three of them from the past three weeks are out there. You can grab those. If you get through all of those and you want to go deeper still, um, please email me because I have resources for, for weeks. So uh, commercial breakover. All right, let me tell you another story. Uh, some of you actually may remember this incident. It took place about six months ago uh, here on the Mosaic campus uh, in a parking lot. It was a Sunday morning, a lot like this. Um, I was playing bass that morning with the worship band. After the first set of the second service, Caesar, who's our uh, care pastor and our facility director, he comes up and he, he says, hey, there's some folks in the parking lot. Um, they're handing stuff out. They're causing a bit of a traffic issue. Nothing major, but um, I think they might be protesting. So we decided we're going to go out there together, and we are just going to overwhelm these people with kindness and love, offer them some free coffee, and just... Um, Invite them in. If they didn't want to join us, just remind them politely, hey, if, you're, if you insist on doing this, you can't be on our property. That's all we plan to do. Um, I actually originally thought, we both did, that these were pro-choice protesters. Um, and I actually would have welcomed that. I would have welcomed the opportunity to, to show those people some kindness and love and, in a different way. Uh, but it wasn't. And the, the situation 
uh, devolved rapidly. Unfortunately, it was people from another church um, who believe in Jesus, but also believe that the law of Moses is still in full effect. And they were protesting Mosaic simply because we were worshiping on a Sunday morning and not on a Saturday, which of course is the traditional Hebrew Sabbath, Shabbat as it's called. And sadly, this man, he was yelling at Caesar and myself before we even got a word out, before we could even say anything. He's labeled us both as sons of Satan. He told us we were leading all of you guys straight to hell because we are meeting on a Sunday and not a Saturday. Of course, Caesar and I both immediately think to ourselves, wait a second, okay, if this guy believes in Jesus and he has this much passion and energy for the things he thinks the Bible is telling him, he surely, surely he just must have innocently missed where Jesus himself addresses this very exact specific issue when the disciples were accused of violating the Sabbath. Uh, by the Pharisees. If you remember that, Jesus simply responded uh, and, and pushed against this legalism and said, Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. This man in the parking lot would hear nothing of it. His very exact concern was specifically addressed by his Savior, and he couldn't see it or didn't want to see it or refused to see it. And I'm assuming this guy is a saved person going to heaven when he dies, but he surely is no friend of the cause of Christ, that's for sure. In fact, it is a position like the one he was taking that has made the church so very easy to dismiss and ignore and label as ignorant. I pray for this man. I really do pray for this man when I think of him, not for his salvation, but for his freedom in this life. The key to his freedom from religious bondage, which he is steeped in, it's found in the doctrine of grace. Something that he and so many others, somehow they just, they just miss it when they're reading the scripture. His, of course, is a very extreme example. I'll give you that. But this guy's issue is rooted in the exact same place as many other well-meaning, far less extreme church people. That unsavory root being graceless religion peddled by uh, graceless Christians. Hey, I want to read you something from the book of Acts. And this is, this is Luke telling a story about Paul when he was talking to the church leaders at the Ephesian church. So Luke, quoting Paul, talking to church leaders in Ephesus. So guard yourselves in God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased by his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave, and they will not spare the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years that I spent with you and my constant watch and care over you night and day and my many tears for you. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that's able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he set apart for himself. Uh, those church leaders, they never saw Paul again after that. 
Luke, right after that, he talks about how Paul said that to them. Uh, the elders, they knelt, they, they prayed for him, they laid hands on him, they hugged, kissed him, and cried with him, and said goodbye and never saw him again. Um, let's rewind a bit from, from that moment. Back to the unfair and clearly biased trials of Jesus after he was arrested. Uh, if you'll remember from the gospel accounts, Jesus actually had a couple of trials. First, by the Jewish, uh, the Jewish religious leaders um, under the authority of Caiaphas. Caiaphas did not have the authority to execute people, so then Jesus had a second trial uh, by the local governor, Pilate. And if you remember, at first, Pilate says something like, um, there is no basis for a charge against this man, and he dismissed it. And as you know, the crowd uh, didn't love that response, so for whatever reason, uh, Pilate folds and um, bends to that crowd and says, fine, but I wash my hands of this. And do you remember what Jesus' crime ultimately was? It was bad theology. Really, reread the gospel accounts. His crime that he was charged with, bad theology and terrorist threats against the, uh, destroying the temple. But bad theology, number one. That bad theology, that was grace. Grace was Jesus' message and theme over and over again. His bad theology violated the work-based theology and law of those graceless leaders that were peddling it for their own benefit. And remember what I said earlier. Jesus did not come to reinforce or slightly adjust or revise the rules of religion. He came to put it to death. He came to set hearts free, not enslave them. He came to bring something new to this world, and that new thing was, that new thing was grace. And the church is what, and that church is what um, the people of the first century, they bought into. They bought into grace, which was a wild deviation from anything they had ever known or experienced. Uh, did they ebb and flow in their acceptance and their ability to buy into that? Yes, they did. And we see that a lot in the New Testament. But it was that new grace that captured the heart of those very first people in, in, in those very first churches. It was that new grace that captured the heart of the very Roman Empire that charged Jesus with bad theology and put him on the cross. It was that new grace that recaptured the heart of the church people led in an, an off-centered direction in the 16th century. And it is that new grace that has the potential to recapture the heart of a nation full of unsaved people who are missing the call of their Savior because of the unattractive way his bride is presenting herself. And I do not mean Oh, please believe me. I do not mean to browbeat the church or badger the church. That's not my heart even a little bit. The church, is, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the basket in which God put all of his eggs in for whatever reason. The church is the hope of the world. I believe that to my very core. You should eject me if, if I'm ever found guilty of creating division within the church. No, I'm just saying church. Mosaic. Oh, please let us not be found guilty. Please let us not find ourselves off-center 
or off-putting to the world around us because we have diminished the gospel by tempering the message of grace. Grace is the answer. Grace is the fix that this world needs so desperately. And, and Jesus gave it to the church to distribute. And like we talked about last week, step one is accept that grace for yourself. Oh, please accept that grace for yourself. Buy into it. Own it. Let it, let it change you. That's step two. And then step three, share it with anybody who will listen to you. Okay, I'm going to read one last thing. And then the band is going to come up and they're going to sing a song. It's not a worship song. Um, but it's a song I want you to just receive as if it's being sung from the church to the world. Does that make sense? So I just want you to sit and receive it. And then after that song, we're going to we'll worship together. Um, but let me end by reading this passage from Galatians 5. It says this, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and do not get tied up again in the slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision or any law to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. Remember, that's 613. For if you are trying to make yourself right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have, you have fallen away from God's grace. Oh, but we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. You who are running the race so well, who has held you back from following the truth? It certainly isn't God, for he is the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. I'm trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who's been confusing you. Dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you must be circumcised, as some say that I do, why am I still being persecuted? If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. I just wish that these troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision, who want to mutilate your heart, would mutilate themselves instead. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law could be summed up in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out and beware of destroying one another. Thanks Amen. for listening to this week's message. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We invite you to connect with us. If you'd like to give to this ministry, you can do so at welcometomosaic.com slash give. Have a great week!